they, um, they all came late on purpose tonight because they know I'm going to speak about time. <laughs> I want to begin with a, a sequel tonight from my guru, Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin, in this uh, particular teaching, is uh, out with his friends it's a, in the winter months uh, sledding, and he's on a sled. You could actually turn it down a little bit, I think. He's on a sled, and in the first caption he says, uh, Go ahead down. You'll miss all those trees. And in the next one, You can do it. You'll stop before you go over that ledge at the bottom. And in the third one, You won't go into that pond. Besides, the ice is probably real thick anyway. Go ahead down. And then finally, in the last caption, like most of us after we've been in one of those storms, my brain is trying to kill me, he says. So, I've been... uh, thinking about for the last uh, week or so what I wanted to speak about tonight. And uh, I happened to be perusing through my pile of books and came upon uh, the book by Bo Lozoff that is titled, We're All Doing Time. And I didn't thumb through the book this time, although I've read it before, but I started thinking about this title, We're All Doing Time. And it really struck me that we're all doing a lot of time. The time is so much inextricably uh, interlinked with everything in our lives. And time is a major part of existence. It's probably the most frequently used measurement that there is. Whether it's days or months, It's the one measurement that almost, without question, uh, without examination, gets overlaid on this mysterious world of name and form and shape and color. Somehow time gets planted on this world, somehow it doesn't get noticed as much. What its impact is, what its effect on our lives. Time has moved beyond just a simple measurement of days and seasons. Time has become, as I said, linked with freedom and suffering, inextricably linked with our freedom and our suffering. Time is our friend. Time is what heals, allows healing to happen. Our emotional wounds, our physical wounds, Time brings a poignancy, a preciousness to our immediate experience. When I know that this moment will never be repeated again, this breath will never be repeated again, that it is bound in time, it lends a kind of immediacy and aliveness 
time allows us to grow, to mature, to awaken. And time hints at what is beyond time. What knows time? Time can also be our enemy. It steals our most favorite experiences. It steals our life, in a way, that which we tether ourselves to. It steals our near and dear ones, fact of time. It lingers, depending on our perception. I'd like to talk more about this tonight, this issue of time, and especially shedding light, if I'm able to, how our ignorance of its influence can cause us, as one Tibetan master put it, to wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, how we can be bound in our minds in time and suffer a lot because of it. By shedding a light on time, we can begin to see where it is that we get hooked by time. And through that careful examination, we can even use the world of time as our door of liberation, as our door of awakening. So what we've been doing here over the course of this retreat is examining very carefully the knowable world. And the knowable world is the world of our different sense experience. The kinds of experiences that arise at the different doors of perception, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our body, our tongue, our thoughts. And we can begin to see for ourselves, it's, I think it's quite, it becomes quite apparent and evident, we've been speaking about it, that this knowable world of senses, every experience, every single experience that you've had since you arrived here, and in your whole life for that matter, has been bound in time, that it has had a birth, a life, and a death. Every experience is subject to those three characteristics that Jack spoke about the other night. This is important to understand this, to understand how the experiences that we have are bound in time. And it's actually through this experience, through this knowing and noticing, that the possibility arises of an awake of awakening to the deathless, to that which is beyond time, that's outside of time. Unborn. Some would say that this timelessness, this deathlessness, is the very nature of the mind that knows. The mind through which you're now perceiving. Yet we awaken to this timelessness, to this to the deathless 
through a timely, continuous, careful observation of the flow of our experience so that we can know with, for ourselves with confidence and conviction that clinging, that grasping, that trying to hold to whatever is bound in time, whatever is subject to the three characteristics of change, insubstantiality, and emptiness, that to cling to any of these experiences is a source of sorrow, of suffering. And through this careful observation, through this confidence and conviction that things are in constant flux, that they're insubstantial and empty, and each of us in our own way, and through that careful observation, our mind naturally relaxes its tight fist of grasping and opens, opens to that space, that timeless, unborn space of knowing. In that space of knowing, There are many ways that our ideas of time, when unexamined, hypnotize us. Hypnotize us into overreaching, overshooting this moment. Generating in their trance-like inductive quality, generating a cycle And I think you may be able to recognize this. Probably had several experiences like this today. Generating a cycle of becoming. Becoming, moving in our minds from our past, where we've been, to where we're going. I was talking to Tara at lunch today, and she described this felt sense that she has of where she is, but the sense that that she's going somewhere, about to do something. And when this cycle, this feeling, goes unexamined, we end up toppling forward and then start to dream that our happiness, our sense of well-being, is yet to come. As the song, I think, Grover Washington, the best is yet to come. This trance that somehow reinforces the sense that this moment, the very one that you're hearing these words, the very one that's where you're contacting your cushion, that this moment somehow is not enough. This is the trance of time. And it generates this force of becoming, and then of waiting, of postponing, of expecting, of hoping, or of hopelessness. And again, our well-being starts being defined by an event that has not yet happened. This is the cause, a cause of suffering. So how do we do this? How does this happen? When I think of my own life, and I think of the people who I've worked with and who I know, it seems to me that there's a common aim 
that every single person has. And no matter what it is that, that you do with your life, whether it's meditation practice or your work or your craft or whatever it might be, that, that the hidden aim in everything that you do and the hidden aim in being here on this retreat is what? Even when you make a mess of your relationship or your house, whatever you do, there's a hidden aim in it. Don't have to say. Most would say, in some ways, happiness. We've talked about it a lot on this retreat. But what would that happiness feel like? Most would say it would be, uh, there would be this, ah, now I can rest. This sense of relief. This sense of ease and comfort. That we, that we think will arrive for us when we get to the end of that rainbow. When we finally have completed whatever tasks, whatever job, whatever idea that we have, and notion we have of what it is that will give us that sense of relief. So as you can probably hear from this, from what I'm saying, is that that innermost desire, that hidden aim, that relief, generally gets tethered to thoughts about the future, ideas of the future. And then whatever we do, or how much we do of it. You know, I notice in my, in my life, and I've, I've fallen into this a little bit myself, when people ask me how I'm doing, I say, I'm really busy. And on one hand, I'm, on the surface, I'm complaining. On the other hand, there's this pride. There's a sense of being somebody because how much I do. And that somehow I associate a lot of doing with somehow arriving. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? So there's a, there's a, a habit of, of evaluating ourselves, kind of judging ourselves based on what, how much we do, what we do, and what we're becoming. Again, there's a kind of leaning quality in it that tends to generate an evaluation that can only be measured by, by reflection, by sometime in the future, to see whether I did enough or became enough. All of that is the trance of the future. So what happens when, when in our minds we're sitting here, resting in the timeless present, and our mind says, I can't be happy until my mind quiets down. I can't be happy until my knee stops hurting. I can't be happy until that person who's breathing hard next to me moves away. I can't be happy until I can finally get out of this retreat and eat some meat. (laughs) What happens to the present moment? doesn't look so hot, does it? But more seriously, I can be serious for a moment, 
if my sense of happiness, again, based on the way that I think, because as we know, the future doesn't really exist. It's only these thoughts that we have in the present moment. But if the sense of happiness depends on what happens in that future event, that future thing that I do, there's always the possibility that it may not make me happy. There's always the possibility that I may continue to be dissatisfied. And so I put this demand on the future to make me happy. And what happened, what's the effect of that? I get anxious because maybe it won't work. Maybe my mind won't quiet down. Maybe everybody won't love me. And so we burden our activities with the demand that they make us happy. And all of that becomes a trance that colors the present moment as somehow unsatisfactory and incomplete. The open secret that is available to us here, when we settle back into the moment, and we stop running out of this moment in search and simply keep quiet, is that in moments we realize that that innermost longing, that innermost desire, is already, as Jack read Gendon Rinpoche's, is already resting quietly on your cushion. That relief is our very nature. Why don't we choose that? Why do we wait to some imagined future, postpone that well-being until that time that we've jumped through all the hoops of our life? Why? Because we've lost touch. We've lost contact with that innate, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls, inherent completeness. Nisargadatta puts it this way. He says, once you understand that the false needs time, and what needs time is false, you are near the reality, which is timeless, ever in the now. Reality is what makes the present so vital so different from past and future, which are merely mental. The real is always with you. You need not wait to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of yourself in search. This is part of a question and answer session, and the the clever questioner says, well, must I not be happy? I may not need something, but if it can make me happy, should I not grasp it? Nisargadatta responds, nothing can make you happier than you are. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious being of being present.
trying to orchestrate and choreograph our happiness for some future event is a very well-practiced habit. Everything in our world encourages us to do this, to look ahead, that it's going to happen some other time. Very few voices, that's why they call it an open secret, very few voices are saying, no, here, now, attention, attention. One anonymous person wrote, first I was dying to finish high school and start college. Then I was dying to finish college and start working. And then I was dying to marry and have children. And then I was dying for my children to grow old enough for school so I could return to work. And then I was dying to retire. And now I'm dying. And suddenly I realize I forgot to live. This dying for what's next is a very subtle thing. It's probably the thing that throws us off our cushion more than anything. That throws us into high levels of discomfort. I'm sure others have talked about this before. But I'll ask you, because I like to do this, have you noticed yourself waiting for the bell to ring? Have you noticed yourself waiting for something to happen? Waiting for that big experience? All of this is the activity. And again, inherent in this is the fixation on an object that's at some other time the future. And of course, we get plenty of evidence for it being worth waiting for. The bell rings and ah, I feel a lot better. It must be the bell that makes me happy. But if we really pay attention, as I know many of you have, what really gives us that sense of relief is not the bell. I mean, the bell's not independent of it. But what really gives the sense of relief is the cessation, the falling away of that state of wanting, that state of waiting. I'll call it the state of postponing. Postponing being okay until the bell rings. The beauty of practice is we can, become, we can begin to recognize those colorings of our experience. We can sense that we're leaning and waiting and actually take waiting as a a, a subject of meditation. And sometimes when you take waiting as a subject of meditation, no matter what it is you're waiting for, that waiting reveals itself as just a changing condition, as just another flavoring of the mind, another mental state. And it no longer, when it's recognized, defines your happiness as a future event. So this is partly an encouragement to continually, ceaselessly scan the mind to see where it's toppling forward into the imagined future. Because this is where time, the ideas of time, can be such, such a problem. Another way that we 
do this kind of focusing on the future and getting fixated and hypnotized by the future is by assuming that we can forecast what we're going to feel like at a future event. And, you know, of course, with the bell, there is some relief, so that's fairly accurate. But for most of the things that we imagine, especially events that are going to be so terrible or so gigantic, we are, as many studies have, have borne out, we are complete failures at forecasting how we're going to feel in the future. There's a, this is actually the title of this article was, In Forecasting Their Emotions, Most People Flunk Out. The studies lesson, you never know what you'll feel later on. But yet we can do this, imagine a future event with such conviction and such confidence and suffer so much in our waiting and anxiety that, of course, if we are able to see that, we can begin to recognize the kind of thought it is or the kind of feeling. It's worrying, expecting, certainty. You can see them, again, as changing conditions arising and passing in this present moment. Other ways that time, our misperception and misunderstanding of our nature and of time can be problematic if we don't notice it and don't understand it. Probably, and I think this is spoken about in many traditions, not just in the Buddha's teachings, but one of the deepest sources of identification, the strongest identity uh, that each of us has is with the body. And so our identity, our whole sense of well-being, tends to be tied to the body. And what's true about our bodies? They're getting old. They are subject to those three laws of impermanence, of insubstantiality, and empty in the sense that they cannot be controlled. You can't tell your body, as Jack often says, you can't tell your body not to get old. It does this. But it's the unwillingness to open to this fact that becomes the cause and condition of all kinds of suffering. And of course, it's natural for us to want to take care of our bodies and to beautify them in certain ways. This doesn't necessarily mean that we denying the fact of our bodies. In fact, uh, a couple days ago, I don't know if many of you remember from my previous discourse, I, I did a little wave of my eyes across the room and I noticed that there was a kind of graying of the, of the Sangha. And uh, somebody a few days after that wrote me a one-line note that said, I don't know if it had to do with that, but I took it as related to the talk. They said, only my hairdresser knows for sure. <clears throat> But this misperception, this sometimes what we do to uh, care for our bodies borders on denial of the facts of existence, evidenced by a, a major fad that is now sweeping the nation. Uh, many of you probably read about this, but uh, this is from the New York Times, and the title of this is Pursuing Potions 
fountain of youth or poisonous fad. And it speaks of, of this new fad. And I'll, I'll just read you the first paragraph. On a sunny morning recently, an elegantly dressed woman strolled down Fifth Avenue, turned into East 72nd Street, and strode past million-dollar limestone maisonettes into the office of Dr. Adrian Denise, The patient, a fashion publicity agent from the higher rungs of New York society, asked not to be named, but revealed that she visits Dr. Denise's clinic to receive her weekly dose of the the 1990s version of youth elixir, human growth hormone. Dr. Denise, a trim blonde with skin that is smooth but oddly hard to the touch, is not your average physician. (laughs) A series of injections of human growth hormone, HGH, at her clinic, she maintains, gives patients glowing skin, and hard, I guess, increased increased muscle mass, elevated sex drive, a lighter mood, sharper mental acuity, and the whiz-bang metabolism of an 18-year-old. And uh, one of her visitors... uh, is quoted as saying, we're not about growing old gracefully, <laughs> said Dr. Ronald Klatz. We're about never growing old. <laughs> and then Gary Simino, age 37, a private investor in Manhattan who's been taking growth hormone for one year, said, my health and my quality of life are major issues for me. Speaking by cellular phone during a workout at the Reebok Sports Club on the Upper West Side, <laughs> He said, I used to be a hedonistic yuppie of the 80s who was only concerned with his Mercedes Benz. Now I'm a hedonistic yuppie of the 90s who's only concerned about his health and well-being and who will do anything for it. So I'm not suggesting being pro-aging or anything, but this this is going a little too far. Searching through for a reliable happiness in, in something such as the body that is bound in time it has its, uh, its corollaries to so many things in our lives, uh, people and experiences and sights and sounds and smells and tastes. <clears throat> I'm reminded of, uh, of this uh, passage that was... Uh, written on the walls of a cave by a guy who was practicing in Thailand many years ago. I think maybe Jack even knew him. It's an American guy who was sitting in a cave in Thailand and apparently he'd been there for a long time and he was an artist and he wrote a lot and he then he got suddenly very ill and then died and when people went and found his stuff they found this passage written on the walls of the cave and in the, the passage said, Oh what a joy to know there is no happiness in this world. Be happy. Oh, what a joy not to look for happiness in changing experiences. Tethering our happiness to our body, for one example. As all of us know that the, uh, the Buddha, his big teaching was about suffering in the cause of suffering and the end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. And a lot of attention was given to the cause of suffering because if we could actually see the cause, 
directly see the cause, not just think about it, that the seed of, of release of that suffering was, is inherent in that. And he talked about the, the uh, cause of suffering being craving, clinging, uh, clinging to experiences, craving for uh, experiences that change, craving for becoming, for that continuity existence, that mind that is forward-looking into the future. He also talked about the developed form of these momentary cravings in the form of attachments. And he talked about the attachment to location, to the concept of location. He talked about attachment to the concept of ownership, how one could create and tether one's identity to things, uh, to these bodies, the sense of we own things, even though it's a temporary relationship that, that is gained uh, with things, money, people, etc. But one of the major attachments that he spoke about was the attachment to the concept of time. And again, I call this the trance of time. And he very clearly, in his teachings, and of course I'm paraphrasing, said that there really is uh, no past. That everything of the past, the past and everything in it is gone. It only arises as thoughts in the present moment. That there is no future, that the future is unborn. And there is no present. Even that's an idea. Try that one on. But we can appreciate this truth not as an idea when we quiet. And when we practice with the understanding that, as Alan Watts said, that the place where it's at if we dig the present, groove with the eternal now, the place where it's at is simply here and now. He says if you meditate for an ulterior motive, that is to improve your mind, to improve your character, to be more efficient in your life, if you're doing that while you're meditating, you've got your eye on the future and you're not meditating. He says the future is a concept. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. There never will be because time is always now. That's one of the things we discover when we stop talking to ourselves for a moment and stop thinking for a moment. We find there is only a present, only an eternal now. So if we're practicing with that gaining mentality, he described it as like like someone who makes music in order to reach a certain point in the composition, such as the end of the composition. He says, if that were the purpose of music, then obviously the faster players would be the best. And also, when we dance, we're not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point. As when we play music, the playing itself is the point. Exactly the same thing is true in meditation. 
Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. Nisargadatta puts it this way. When the mind is momentarily free of its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. If you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it, you will find that it's permeated with a light and a love you have never known yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've passed through this experience, you'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind may break its peace and obliterate its vision, but it's bound to return, provided the effort is sustained, until the day when all bonds are broken, delusions and attachments end, and life and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. Can we give up our attachment to time, to the future, to the past? Rumi says in the title of his poem, There's Nothing Ahead. He says, lovers think they're looking for each other, but there's only one search. Wandering this world is wandering that, both inside one transparent sky. In here, there's no dogma, no heresy. The miracle of Jesus is himself, not what he said or did about the future. Forget the future. I'd worship someone who could do that. On the way, you may want to look back or not, but if you can say there's nothing ahead, there'll be nothing there. Stretch your arms and take hold of the cloth of your clothes with both hands. The cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you don't belong with us. When one of us gets lost, is not here, He must be inside us. There's no place like that anywhere in the world. I made a couple notes to myself here about something I had... uh, learned about the concept of time, how it's so uh, relative, depending on our different perception, our different culture. In our culture, and this is obvious to most people, we tend to put the future in front of us. And I even made that gesture a bunch of times. And we put the past behind us. There are some cultures that put the past in front of us, because you can see it, and the future behind us, because you can't. So, try it out. (laughs) The past is in front of us. Future behind us. 
A deeper question is, at least to me, where is time when we don't think of it? Where is time now? When you don't give rise to a thought of the past or the future. How does that feel? Untethered to memory and hope for a moment. Another way of asking the question, what if this is as good as it gets? Like a line in that movie of the same name. Isn't that the name of the movie? Where Jack Nicholson walks into the office and sees all the people in the therapist's offices. He says, what if this is as good as it gets? Just try it on for a moment. Forget the future, the better future. Take what you get. Now, if you don't refer to your memory for a few moments of how you think it should be, just sense the immediacy of your experience. See if there's a big problem. Now, if I refer to my memory and my plans, I've got lots of them. All the movement of time in our minds, the movement of suffering in our minds. When we're absent-minded, we're deeply affected by these thoughts, these thoughts of how it should be or how it was. But our wakefulness, our practice allows us to see these thoughts of time, of past and future, as bubbles, as changing conditions. Not self, not tethered to anything except themselves. Thoughts being their own thinkers. At this stage in the retreat, at least I noticed today, People were coming into interviews along these same lines, thinking about how much time there was left. And it was funny how it would ebb and flow. One person would come in and say, oh my God, in so many words, please, I'm not quoting you. Oh my God, it's ending soon. I have to go back. And that I translate in terms of a thought of time, I don't have enough time. How do you feel when you think, I don't have enough time? What happens to your body? Then, of course, the opposite was, I've practiced 10 days now, never done it that long. There's so much time left. (laughs) What do I do now? So just in listening to this, I I reflect on on one of my own practices, that I take thoughts like this. The thought that was, you know, I don't want this to end, I kind of translated that as, 
as I don't have enough time, using what, what is probably the most, one of the most common metaphors in our culture, which is called the time is money metaphor, which is the, I don't have enough time, I have too much time, I'm not spending my time well, using my time, all that. I mean, we, and we think that way a lot. Am I alone in this? And so I, I take those thoughts, I don't have enough time. And I know how much that operates in the world. I, I meet with people all the time, and people are frenzied. They're stressed. Of course, you may not have that sense as much on a retreat, but there, is, there are those points when either the sitting's going to end and you want it to last, or the retreat's going to end and you want it to last, where there's the sense, I don't have enough time. So what I like to do with that, and just try it on for a moment, I take that sentence, I don't have enough time. Now, if I follow that thought, there's a whole emotional quality. There's a whole feeling that goes with it. It's, a, oh my God, it's, and then how, what am I going to do when I get out of here? And it's just a trail that just goes into a, a huge proliferation of thoughts about the future. Now, let's imagine if we were to reverse that trend outward toward more thoughts, backward toward where the thought came from. Not historically, but let's take that thought. I don't have enough time. And just try that on for a moment, how that feels. Now let's just remove time from the sentence. What are we left with? I don't have enough. A little insufficiency? Okay, feel that. Now let's remove enough from the sentence. I don't have. How does that feel? Now let's remove have. I don't. Not quite as bad at this point. Now let's just remove don't. What are you left with? I. You're okay at that point, pretty much. I. I. I can even wallow an I and be okay. Not just for the sake of interest and adventure. Let's remove the I. What happens to the suffering? Henry Van Dyke puts it this way. Time is too slow for those who wait. Too slow for those who fear. Too long for those who grieve. Too short for those who rejoice. But for those who love, time is eternity. During this uh, part of the talk, I, I, I want to come back a little bit into uh, the use of time in our practice. 
in the way that we use in our practice that we mingle the time we mingle time with the timeless to the extent that our practice and the tools of practice we do moment to moment we do them in time they're bound in time we make an effort there's a result we bring energy energy changes and all that we do here is provide skillful means tools triggers that help return us, reconnect us with the timeless, reveal to us the timeless. So moment to moment, we prompt our attention. We gather our attention, either to the most predominant object of meditation, or as Tara, pointed us to the other night, to awareness itself. All of this, all of these triggers, all of these tools are bound by time. They happen for a time. But what they point to, what they hopefully open in us, is a recognition, a revelation of what's outside of time, beyond time. connecting us again with that in us which is unprompted. I mean, once we've connected with the present moment, once we've gathered ourselves, we don't keep holding that tool. We don't hold on to time. We relax. We let the natural awareness shine on whatever is present when we're undistracted. So we taste that that mind that is unprompted, unfabricated, uncontrived, that open spaciousness and clarity. And we return again in time, again and again and again and again and again and again. That sounds like time, doesn't it? Again and again and again to where we are. It's a funny paradox. It's a funny weaving. Now, the mindfulness in the most general way is what is our navigator, that navigator through time to the timeless. But that mindfulness not only is the navigator, but it's the destination. But sometimes, as a navigator, it has to take on different flavors to help balance us, to help bring us back to that sense of equilibrium, that sense of eternal now, that sense of presence. And each of us, and I'm going to invite you to pay attention to some different qualities that can help you bring some balance, bring you back, help you step out of time. There's a list. I'll try to do this very briefly. There's a list of five what are called mental factors or jhanic factors. Five factors of mind that help return us, that help awaken us. 
two of them that we are, that are essential in practice that make all the other three come naturally, that make us able to really stay where we are. That is, one is called aiming or vitaka. The second one is called vichara or sustaining. That bringing our mind, gathering ourselves in time to whatever is present and sustaining our attention. This aiming and sustaining, aiming and sustaining, gathering and staying with. This is a, a real key. And if you feel, and these, this is especially useful, the aiming of your mind is especially useful when you're tired, when you're dull and you're spaced out. It's a specific antidote for that. And the sustaining, continuing your attention on something is considered the antidote for faith and doubt. I mean, for doubt. Because it gives you confidence and conviction in what's being noticed. Three qualities come with this that you can also notice. One is the quality of comfort. It's called sukha, ease. That sometimes we're not able to, to be present. What makes us leap out of the present into that imagined future is what that feeling of what makes us leap out is restlessness. And so finding comfort, softness in our minds, ease, helps us to balance that. And also interest, that quality of investigation and interest, intense interest, helps to balance, helps to um, balance that tendency to want to push things away. Aversion. And lastly, the mind that is one-pointed, that steadiness of your mind. If you, if you just stay put sometimes, it helps as an antidote against the mind that craves for something more, that, that is obsessed with what's next. So again, aiming, sustaining, comfort, interest, and one-pointedness or steadiness. Begin to use them in your practice, and you may begin to discover that passionate commitment and connection with the present moment. That hopefully will begin to diminish that habit of going out of ourselves in search in time. from Rumi. We are the driving ones. Ah, but the step of time. Think of it as a dream in whatever, in what forever remains. All that is hurrying soon will be over with. 
Only what lasts can bring us to the truth. Young men, don't put your trust into the trials of flight, into the hot and quick. All things already rest, darkness and morning light, flower and book. We are the driving ones, ah, but the step of time. Think of it as a dream in what forever remains. So as always, to be able to recognize this dream-like changing nature of the world of a form that we so often cling to and try to hold on to is the practice of mindfulness. And this practice of mindfulness, as I said, is both the navigator and the destination. So you could say that to step out of time, to be present, is both is the beginning of practice, it is the practice, and it is the end of practice. And I close with a poem from Wendell Berry called The Wild Geese. Horseback on Sunday morning, harvest over, we taste persimmons and wild grapes, sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over the fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise. Pale in the seed's marrow, geese appear high over us, pass and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way, clear in the ancient faith. What we need is here. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and in eye clear. What we need is here. You can just remain as you are for a few moments. Don't need to change posture.